Welcome to a new history of old San Antonio. Episode 21, A City Divided. I'm Brandon Seal. I'm a city, San Antonio. Tonight I'm looking at your lovely life. When Abraham Lincoln won the 1860 presidential election, Texas, like many other southern states, put the issue of secession to a vote. For most of the state, the outcome was never really in question. But San Antonio in 1860 didn't really look like the rest of Texas, much less the Deep South. In 1860, out of a population of 8,235 souls, only 514 were slaves, about 6%, and less than 4% of San Antonians were actually slave owners. As such, slavery was not an indispensable or even important part of San Antonio's economy. As the title of historian Larry Knight's essay on slavery in South Texas suggests, defenders of the peculiar institution in San Antonio were, in reality, quote, defending the unnecessary, end quote. Much of San Antonio's population, particularly amongst her German plurality, was actively opposed to slavery. In 1854, the German communities of Texas convened in San Antonio at their annual Staatssingerfest, or State Singing Festival. Recall, our Texas Germans love to sing. Picking up on the hot-button issue of the day, 54 of the men present issued a statement declaring that, quote, "...slavery is an evil, the removal of which is absolutely necessary according to the principles of democracy, and if a state determines the removal of this evil, it may call on the federal government for aid." End quote. This bold and unequivocal call for abolition was quickly taken up by San Antonio's German-language newspaper, the San Antonio Zeitung, and by a new English-language rag called the Alamo Express, edited by a young newspaper man named James Newcomb. Newcomb was relentless in attacking the, quote, Cotton Kings, whom he believed were leading the state into a war that they and their sons wouldn't have to fight. And in truth, many moderate Anglo-San Antonians were leery of secession as well. With her role as a trading hub and with her climate entirely inhospitable to southern-style plantation agriculture, San Antonio probably had as many immigrants from northern states as from southern states in 1860. And all of them remembered the neglect of the Republic years and compared it to the prosperity that San Antonio had experienced since annexation to the Union. Yet by this time, San Antonio's leaders had, in response to a most peculiar episode in 1854, developed deep ties with other Democratic Party leaders in the state, whose constituents saw the issue differently. In the early 1850s, a political party that would come to be known as the Know-Nothings had sprung up throughout the United States, characterized by their anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, and anti-Democratic Party positions. These stances perhaps formed a coherent political platform in a generic northeastern city, but San Antonio in 1854, heavily immigrant, heavily Catholic, and traditionally without political parties that lined up neatly with a national or even state parties, seemed a strange place for the movement to flourish. And yet in the municipal elections of 1854, the Know-Nothings won the mayorship and several city council seats. I struggled to find good information on this election, frankly, but it seems as though San Antonio Know-Nothings managed to forge a fragile coalition with German anti-slavery voters, despite the anti-immigrant stances that their party had taken elsewhere, and even some Tejano voters, despite the anti-Catholic stances that the party had taken elsewhere. The best I can put together is that their brief victories in San Antonio were really an expression of frustration with the political class that had dominated San Antonio since the 1820s. The old San Antonio politicians, naturally, organized in response to the challenge. In 1855, Samuel Maverick, Juan Seguin, and Angel Navarro III, the Harvard-trained son of José Antonio Navarro, formally organized the Bear County Democratic Party, allying themselves with the only other political party in the state and the party that was, despite its unqualified support for slavery, the more moderate, big-tent party at the time. In the meantime, the know-nothings in San Antonio did themselves few favors. First, they began to voice support for a series of increasingly violent attacks against Tejano freighters, known to history as the Cart Wars, 
a tax which horrified San Antonians who had long depended on the Tejano-led mule trains to bring virtually everything they needed to their isolated town. Next, the Know-Nothings halted Spanish translations of city business, alienating what little Tejano support they had left. Then they banned bullfighting and cockfighting, popular activities of the day across ethnicity and class in San Antonio. And lastly, they banned fandangos, and they enforced the ban rigorously. And I'm not kidding, this seems to have been the final straw. When the know-nothings turned themselves into the preacher from Footloose, San Antonians decided that they had had enough and put the now formally organized Bear County Democratic Party into office. Of course, in the weird political alignments of the day, removing the anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic party from power meant replacing them with the pro-slavery party. And so, on the eve of the Civil War, San Antonio's most powerful political faction found itself bound, for reasons almost entirely unrelated to slavery, to a statewide party charting an extreme course. Full disclosure, Juan Seguin, Samuel Maverick, José Antonio Navarro, and many of the men we've been following owned slaves themselves. We'll never be able to understand how these men who told the bells of liberty so loudly in San Antonio's history could reconcile in their minds holding other men in bondage. Yet to be fair, each of these men advocated against secession, which went to voters on January 28, 1861. In the end, San Antonians voted 827 to 709 in favor of seceding from the United States. It was a close vote, and many opponents of secession alleged fraud by observers brought in by radical outside groups to keep an eye on San Antonio. It didn't really matter, however. Statewide, secession won in a landslide, and when the state convention gathered in Austin on February 1st, the state of Texas formally left the union it had joined only 15 years prior. Most San Antonians, even those who had opposed secession, followed Texas once the decision had been made. Navarro would send all four of his sons to fight for the new Confederate States of America. Maverick would see his four sons in gray uniforms as well, and he was soon selected as one of the three commissioners charged with securing all U.S. government property in San Antonio for the newly re-independent state of Texas. On February 8th, Samuel Maverick met with the commander of the U.S. Army forces in San Antonio, General David Twiggs. Twiggs was understandably confused as to what exactly he should do. On the one hand, the men under his command constituted almost 10% of the regular U.S. Army, stationed in San Antonio for the previous decade to confront Comanche incursions and to calm the lawless borderlands. His arms and inventory were valued at $1.3 million, and handing this over to the rebel militia would be a major boon to their new revolt. Yet the 72-year-old Twiggs was reluctant to start the Civil War, thousands of miles from reinforcements, in the middle of the largest city in Texas, by firing on a civilian militia composed of men that his superiors in Washington, D.C. technically insisted were still American citizens. For eight tense days, negotiations continued between Maverick and Twiggs in the old Veramendi house, site of the death of old Ben Milam, the marriage of Jim Bowie, and many other moments of historical importance in San Antonio. Maverick and Twiggs were genuinely committed to avoiding bloodshed, yet each had honor to protect. On February 16th, just as Texas Ranger Colonel Ben McCullough received the order to assault Twiggs and his forces, Maverick and Twiggs agreed on the terms of a surrender, on the condition that Twiggs' men be allowed to march out of Texas under arms and unmolested. When he marched out of San Antonio with the rest of Twiggs' army the next day, Lieutenant Colonel Robert E. Lee was still wearing blue. Twiggs was immediately vilified in the North for his refusal to fire on San Antonians. Again, more evidence for how high emotions were running in 1861. On March 1st, he was dismissed from the U.S. Army for, quote, treachery to the flag of his country, end quote, making him one of the few generals actually run out of the U.S. Army on the eve of the Civil War. The Civil War, of course, quickly grew to a size and scale that even its most bloodthirsty proponents never could have expected. In total, almost 2,000 San Antonians, out of a pre-war population of a little over 8,000, served under the Confederate flag during the Civil War, which should come as no surprise given that the tradition of armed service amongst San Antonians was as old as the town itself. 
This was a community that in 1759 had traked 400 miles into the wilderness after the Comanches, that in 1835 sent the sons of her first families to aid their Federalist brothers in Coahuila, that in 1840 responded to the call of the nearby Republic of the Rio Grande, and that in 1847 helped conquer the city that had at least twice tried to annihilate their own town. Yet this was the furthest afield that San Antonians had ever marched, and the Civil War would ultimately pull San Antonians to battlefields as distant as Tucson, Arizona, and Franklin, Tennessee. And almost one-third of the San Antonians who marched out to fight in this war wouldn't return home. In addition to the Navarros and the Mavericks, many other old families furnished soldiers to the cause. Lorenzo de Zavala's son joined the Confederate Navy. Francisco and Manuel Esparza, sons of Alamo defender Gregorio Esparza, and non-combatants inside the mission during the battle, enlisted in the Confederate Army. Ángel Navarro III would rise to command a company of Tejanos. Others, like José de la Garza, Manuel Iturri, and the Bustillos brothers, would win recognition for their gallantry in the Arkansas Theater. The 2nd Texas Mounted Rifles took over the duties of the old 2nd U.S. Cavalry in defending the frontier forts. Composed of some 800 men drawn primarily from South Texas, including at least 30 San Antonio Tejano artillerymen and 30 San Antonio Tejano infantrymen, in late 1861, the unit marched west to conquer New Mexico and Arizona, capturing Mesilla, Albuquerque, and Tucson before being turned back at the Battle of Glorieta Pass. They would end the war with only 150 men patrolling the area between San Antonio, Eagle Pass, and Brackettville against increased Comanche incursions, their ranks decimated by casualties and disease. The home front in San Antonio during the Civil War was almost as dangerous as some of its battlefields. Many Texans were already suspicious of the town. San Antonio didn't really feel like the rest of the state, and the fact that it lay on the road to Mexico, or freedom if you were a slave, gave some slave owners reason to fear that San Antonians were actively siphoning slaves out of their bondage. South of San Antonio, the Union had some success in recruiting regiments from locals who felt ignored or oppressed by the party structures in Austin. And though more Texas Germans served with the Confederacy than against it, the most vocal opponents of the Confederacy in Texas came from German communities. All of this led to the stationing of pro-Confederate vigilante units in San Antonio early in the war. In September 1861, they lynched a vocal German Unionist in front of San Fernando Cathedral. Unfazed, in July of 1862, German Unionists openly protested the newly instituted Confederate draft. Then, in August of 1862, 65 German men and boys fleeing to Mexico to avoid the draft gave rise to rumors of a German Unionist regiment organizing in the hill country. The vigilantes assembled in San Antonio rode out after them and slaughtered 25 of their number near Comfort, Texas, plus nine others whom they executed after they had surrendered. This brutal episode set off protests in the city, with San Antonio Unionists marching through the streets of town singing the abolitionist anthem John Brown's Body and even engaging in low-level guerrilla activities such as taking pot shots at city leaders from rooftops. Pro-Confederate forces of course retaliated, and according to Texas Ranger and historian Rip Ford, quote, small-scale violence prevailed in the Alamo City until the end of the war, end quote. Rip Ford, whose real name was John Salmon Ford, actually earned his moniker Rip around this time because so many of his letters concluded with his abbreviation of the phrase, Rest in Peace. Early in the war, he had been charged with defense of the frontier, but had been left with virtually no men and no funds to do so. The Confederate draft begun in 1862 only further depleted the forces available for frontier service. And so in December 1863, Colonel Rip Ford set up camp in Alamo Plaza and began a formal recruitment drive to enlist 1,300 men from San Antonio and surrounding areas into his Cavalry of the West. Effectively, the only men available for service in the Cavalry of the West were draft exempts, men who were too old, too young, or too otherwise infirm to be wanted in the Eastern theaters. Yet these were also men who, like their forefathers, had known warfare almost their entire lives, 
through service and ranger companies, or lessons learned as veterans of San Antonio's famed Compañías Volantes, and they answered the call once again. By 1864, Union forces in the Rio Grande Valley had begun to gain ground against the sparse Confederate forces protecting the critical cotton trade routes to Mexico, the South's only market for their cash crop. In March of 1864, the cavalry of the West marched out of San Antonio to meet them. Over the course of the next year, and outnumbered four to one, the cavalry of the West would sweep Union forces almost entirely out of South Texas, despite the absence of aid from the state or Confederate government, and despite Ford's personal flare-ups of the malaria that he had contracted during the Mexican-American War. The cavalry of the West would ultimately fight and win the last battle of the Civil War at Palo Alto in the Rio Grande Valley on March 13, 1865, more than a month after General Lee's surrender at Appomattox, with their only pay for the entire period being the proceeds from the sale of their weapons to Mexican Imperial forces across the river. San Antonio bore the cost of the Civil War in men and material just like everyone else, yet its remoteness from the primary fields of action spared it the devastation visited on many proper southern cities. If anything, San Antonio on balance experienced a mild economic boom. A cartridge factory on the east side went into business manufacturing ammunition for the Confederate Army. San Antonians' famed leather workers were put to work in an industrial tannery which processed enough leather for 15,000 pairs of shoes per month. And when the Union Navy blockaded the Confederacy's ports, this left the only access to foreign markets through Mexico, a trade which San Antonio had long controlled. The road from San Antonio to Matamoros became known as the Wisps of Cotton Road because of all the stray cotton fibers adorning the brush, as locals like George Brackenridge realized fantastic profits moving stranded Confederate cotton to foreign buyers just across the Rio Grande. This new trade led to the reopening of trade relations between San Antonio and Mexico and the establishment of the first Mexican consulate in San Antonio. When the war ended and Union troops entered San Antonio on June 2, 1865, the scars of the war were not quick to heal. Reconstruction placed an abused Unionist minority in control of a defeated ex-Confederate majority, and neither was quick to forgive or forget. James Newcomb, the Unionist newspaperman, had been forced to flee for his life to Mexico around 1863, but returned in 1867 to take the helm of the newly founded San Antonio Express News. Neither time nor the war had moderated his views, and he, along with other old Unionists and funded now by the new wealth of men like George Brackenridge, recently returned from exile himself, began to advocate for San Antonio's secession from Texas. At the 1868 Texas Constitutional Convention, the counties of the Hill Country and Southwest Texas proposed their own state with San Antonio as the capital. Coming from San Antonio, this was a uniquely credible threat. By my count, San Antonio had threatened, attempted, and on at least two occasions successfully managed to secede at least a half a dozen times in the previous 57 years. The group even drafted a Constitution of West Texas, as they called the new state. The movement was endorsed by Republicans in Washington, by some San Antonio merchants who had always been lukewarm in their support for the Confederacy, and frankly by some ex-Confederate San Antonians who were just eager to have the constraints of Reconstruction lifted. Yet local Democrats in the old political network beat back the movement, and indeed, Reconstruction in San Antonio would come to an end sort of on its own in 1872, two years before the rest of the state. That year, the Reconstruction mayor got caught up in a scandal in which he attempted to buy a piece of land from a politically connected ally at an inflated price, a move that appalled the upright German plurality and undermined what little support remained for Reconstruction even amongst the victors. And the truth was that, as in the past when San Antonian had been turned against San Antonian, a few years of doing business together and marrying each other was often enough to gloss over past wrongs. And it also helped that San Antonians still had a shared enemy. The Comanches, as we alluded to, picked up on the vulnerability of the frontier during the years of the Civil War, and in 1861, they began to raid the ranches around San Antonio, inciting a fair amount of panic. 
When they organized the largest raid since their 1840 Great Raid, right through the center of the state in 1862, the second mounted Texas rifles were called back in response. Once the Comanches had retreated to the plains, the second Texas rifles were briefly moved out of state, at which point the Comanches returned in force again in 1864, leading to the weakened unit's permanent recall to the frontier. Still, nearly every wagon train leaving San Antonio for points west would be harassed by the plainsmen for the duration of the war. By the end of the Civil War, Comanches had pushed the settlement line back 100 miles, back to where it was in approximately 1849 when a cholera epidemic had decimated their tribe. Yet the end of the Civil War allowed the city and the state to redirect resources to deal with the Comanches. The two ranger captains of the period reflect the ethnic composition of the town, and the ranks of the rangers were still filled disproportionately with San Antonians. Captain H.R. von Biberstein and Captain Cesar de la Garza Falcón, the latter a descendant of one of the original settlers of the Rio Grande Valley, took up the fight that San Antonians had been waging for a century. They dogged the Comanches in their homes, harried them on their hunting grounds, and overwhelmed them with firepower. After suffering several defeats in South Texas and the Hill Country in the years immediately following the Civil War, in 1868, the Comanches finally accepted relocation to a reservation in Oklahoma. Soon, however, the great horse lords of the plains realized that for a free, mounted people like themselves, this was a death sentence by another name. And so in 1871, reasoning that their peace with the American father did not carry over to their ancient enemies, the Tejanos, the Comanches rode off their reservation and launched a series of horrific raids that would yield some of the most sustained violence that the frontier had seen in a generation. Yet for once, San Antonio was at the periphery of the violence, serving primarily as a supply depot and jumping-off point. The removal of the fearsome Apaches also opened up the range for San Antonians to practice another familiar old trade, ranching. Eastern and foreign capital flooded in, anxious to take advantage of the wide-open spaces that could support these enormous commercial herds. And yet it wasn't cattle that most of these investors initially wanted to run. Anglo-Americans still retained the tastes and prejudices of the British Isles and tried for several decades to run sheep on the South Texas Plains. They made out okay in the hill country, but mostly they just overgrazed the native grasses down to their roots and allowed the now familiar scrub brush to take over. Still, San Antonio had become the major focal point for wool production in Texas, processing one-third of the wool output of the entire state by 1870. And soon, the men buying up these enormous ranches, as they anglicized the old San Antonio word, found an even hardier animal that could survive even on the scrub brush that now outcompeted the native grasses. It was cattle that had sustained San Antonio in her early years, when it served as the primary source of income generation for the isolated frontier community. And after the Civil War, it was cattle that would save San Antonio once again, this time from the economic depression that settled in over the rest of the defeated Confederate states. Cattle had run wild during the Civil War years across the Texas Plains. Wild Spanish corriente strains bred with escaped continental breeds left untended during the Civil War years. And as if to prove that the Texas frontier hardened not only men, but also animals, they evolved enormous, out-of-proportion long horns, which soon gave them their name. Longhorn cattle roamed the plains now in numbers that the state hadn't seen since the 1790s, the last time that San Antonians had won a definitive peace from their Native American opponents. San Antonians, of course, had been running cattle on the open range for generations now, and their time-honored cattle-working techniques soon emanated out from the town as far as horses would carry them. By osmosis or by design, even new English-speaking cowboys adopted the old jinete code, and before long, the nation would adopt as the paragon of American manliness this figure who, unwittingly perhaps, looked and acted a whole lot like an 18th century San Antonio vicino. Fittingly, San Antonio became the focal point for this new cattle business. A steer that could be bought for $3 in South Texas, or had for free if you were enterprising enough, sold for 10 times that much in northern American cities. Between 1865 and 1890, 
10 million head of cattle and 1 million horses moved through San Antonio to northern markets, the last frontier for San Antonio drovers who had long driven cattle east and west. San Antonio merchants and manufacturers grew wealthy off the new activity and began to build what are still some of the most beautiful houses in the city, in the King William area, and the old Irish Flats neighborhood. With a population of 12,256 people in 1870, San Antonio remained the largest city in the state. And yet it remained also stubbornly poor, with perhaps the highest illiteracy rates in the country, only half of its school-aged children enrolled in schools, and with an average per capita wealth of only one-eighth that of nearby Austin, which was, by the way, touting its new railroad connection in an attempt to lure the military away from its centuries-old attachment to San Antonio. And perversely, the increased trade and connection with the East that had brought prosperity to San Antonio started to make San Antonians embarrassed by their own provincialism. The isolation that had defined San Antonio now came to be seen as the greatest hindrance to its development. The Express News opined, quote, Only the snort of the iron horse can save us from barbarism, end quote. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review. Because if everyone who listened to this podcast left us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can also visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend, Noel McKay, for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. For this episode, I'd also like to thank Lewis Fisher, a local historian who is still producing great works through his imprint, Maverick Publishing, recently acquired by Trinity University Press. Check out his book, Chili Queens, Hay Wagons, and Fandangos, The Spanish Plazas and Frontier San Antonio, for a detailed history of the plazas that reached the peak of their activity during this period, when they bustled with San Antonio cowboys, U.S. Army soldiers, Tejano teamsters, German, Irish, and French traders, and countless other visitors from points even more distant. 